please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8. Uh, last night at the Saturday night service, I got in trouble because I forgot to announce that uh, Blake and Julie did have their twins. Uh, Wednesday, about 6 o'clock, Gracie and Luke were born. I, I don't know which is which. Um, but they're both beautiful. Gracie was 4 pounds, 11 ounces. Luke was 5 pounds, 2 ounces. Everybody's healthy. Julie is healthy. Babies are healthy. Uh, they're still in the hospital. Um, and hopefully, I think they're hoping that they'll be able to go home tomorrow. So there you go. Now I, I won't be in trouble with any of the moms. I've announced it. I even had a picture. There you go. Um, I, you know, I did some research this week on, um, on phobias. It's amazing what things are classified as, as phobia. I want to I share some of my research with you, okay? Some of these phobias you may not have heard of before. Ablutophobia is the fear of washing or bathing. A few folks at my house who have ablutophobia sometimes. <laughs> they also have ergophobia sometimes. That's the fear of work. Now, actually, I don't know if it's a fear or just an aversion. It's more you know, ergoversion instead of ergophobia, but uh, they display both of those. They also periodically have lacanophobia, which is the fear of vegetables. <laughs> There's a fear called chaetophobia, which is the fear of hair. It's strange. There's also paganophobia, which is a very specific fear of hair. It's the fear of beards. <laughs> Crazy fear of beards. Chronophobia. You don't want that because you're always afraid. That's fear of time. Geliophobia, the fear of laughter, that'd be terrible to have. Telephonophobia, fear of telephones. Xenoglossophobia, the fear of foreign languages. Ah, was that French? Ah, you don't want that. Okay, and here's my favorite. This is my favorite. Okay. Hippopotamonstrosesquipedialophobia, which is, ironically, the fear of long words. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Um, my wife has a phobia, and I asked permission. She said I could share her phobia with you. She has coulrophobia, which is the fear of clowns. Yeah, <laughs> clowns. They can be kind of scary, can't they? I don't know if she had a childhood experience. She doesn't remember, but the fear of clowns. Phobias, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being silly. I'm making fun of them. But uh, they can be very real and very debilitating and very destructive to our lives. How do you overcome a phobia? Maybe you're saying, well, I don't, I don't have any phobias, Brian, so that's fine. I, this message won't apply to me. Well, what about, uh, do you have any addictions? Or do you have any sins that are just habitual, that you just can't seem to put aside? And maybe they're not the big ones, you know, that get you in trouble socially. Maybe it's just impatience or your tongue or anger. Any of those things. It could be a phobia, an addiction, a habitual besetting sin. How do you overcome those? What's the dynamic? Well, it's all the same. The first uh, step is interesting. Uh, it's basically admitting you can't overcome it. You can't do it. You cannot overcome it on your own. If you, uh, I was having lunch with a friend of mine earlier this week, and we were talking about a variety of things. And uh, it was interesting because if you go back and you look at uh, either Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, uh, helps overcome addiction to alcohol, or um, celebrate recovery, which is also overcoming a variety of addictions. If you look, the first uh, rule or principle in both of these is the same. For Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. 
We confess we can't change ourselves. Celebrate Recovery says this, I realize that I'm not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and my life is unmanageable. Do you realize that uh, the first step in actually being changed is to completely surrender your will and say, I can't do it. It's very humbling, isn't it? It's very humbling. Uh, As I've been reading through Galatians chapter 4 and just studying on my own and thinking through this passage, uh, what I've noticed is these images of children keep coming up in my mind. So here's your image for the week. Okay? I... I, uh, a very good friend who had a, a baby, and uh, this was a couple of years ago, and he asked me, he said, when, when do you see children's will beginning to emerge? And I said, well, when you change her diaper, does she arch her back? And he said, yeah, she does. I said, there you go. He said, it's, they come out completely, not just needy, but selfish and self-centered and demanding, and their will emerges almost immediately that they say, I will have my way, rather than saying, no, your way, mom and dad. They don't come out saying that. They don't. And then you as a parent help them begin this process of transformation, hopefully conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ, and where you start is by teaching them to surrender their will to God's. And say, not my will, God, but your will be done. That is how our lives are transformed. And apart from taking that step, we will not be transformed. Because we cannot change ourselves. We are born with an addiction to self. We are born completely addicted to pursuing our own self-interest. And what Paul is laying out in Galatians is he's saying, look, there are only two basic pathways of life. One in which we say to God, your will be done. And the other in which we say, my will be done. And what Paul is saying is, the law, since God has set it aside and says, and has said to us, that is no longer the governing authority in your life. Now to go back under the law is basically saying to God, my will be done. I can do it. I can earn a relationship with you. I can grow in a relationship with you. I can transform myself into your image. I can change myself. And Paul's saying, if you go back under that set of rules and regulation, that style of life, you will be enslaved and your life will eventually and progressively be destroyed. It doesn't work. On the other hand, you can follow the pattern of Abraham, which is a life of faith, surrendering yourself to the will of God and allowing him to transform you. But you're going to have to make a choice every single day. Which pathway do you walk? Paul's been very doctrinal to this point. He's been making his argument theologically. Now he's going to turn and he's going to exhort. He's going to begin with a a very personal appeal. And what he's going to appeal to them is to walk down this pathway following his example and the example of Jesus Christ. The other pathway, the pathway of self, it's interesting. Martin Luther used to talk about it. He said it's like a, a, a drunk peasant on a horse. He could fall off either side. One side's legalism. One side is libertinism or immorality. Okay? And you could go either way, but both paths, those, that's, that's, that's self. Okay? If it's legalism, well, that looks pretty good in our circles and people praise you. Because externally that looks really good, but inside there's pride because of what you have accomplished. Immorality and so forth, well, that isn't quite as socially acceptable, but both of those are just the pathway of self. And so Paul's actually going to hit both of those topics. He's going to start with the issue of legalism and the law, and then he's going to move on into libertinism or immorality, and he's going to say the solution to both is the life of confidence in Christ, faith, surrender of your will. 
Okay? But he begins with a personal appeal to these people. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, you've exchanged your old pagan idolatry for enslavement to Judaism. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. Paul says, become as I am. This is actually the first imperative in the book of Galatians. It's the first command. He's been teaching and teaching and arguing, and now he turns and he makes a personal appeal. He says, I beg of you, and then he issues an imperative. Become as I am. What does that mean? In what sense was Paul with them? How had he changed himself and identified himself with them? In what sense had he modeled this life? Well, I want to give you a few characteristics. The first is he was with them in physical weakness. He was not a commanding physical presence with them. Look at chapter 4 and verse 13. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Paul was with them in physical weakness. What was Paul's physical weakness? No, we don't know, but uh, the stuff that we don't know, theologians speculate on, and they spend most of their time on stuff that you really just can't figure out. We don't know. Uh, Some say maybe he had epilepsy, because one of these words uh, talks about uh, this word for despise means to spit out, and you know, uh, if someone had an epileptic attack, they might foam at the mouth and say, oh, maybe he has epilepsy or... Uh, maybe he caught malaria in that region. Others say, well, he, he had eye problems. Remember, he had to write one of the letters. He signed it with his own hand. He said, see with what large letters I write. Maybe it was an eye problem because these believers say, well, we would have plucked out our eyes and given them to you. The fact is, we don't know. Others say, well, maybe it was the same as the thorn in the flesh. But the problem is, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was either. Okay, we don't know. The Galatians knew exactly what the physical illness was, so he doesn't talk about it because he's writing to them. The point that's important to us to think about is, why was it a temptation for them to despise Paul or look down upon Paul? Why was that a temptation? Paul was an apostle. Why would they look down upon him? Why don't you keep your place here in Galatians and turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. Paul's talking about his opponents in Corinth. It says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Okay, everywhere that Paul went, he had opposition. And one of the reasons he had opposition was he was not a commanding physical presence. He's nothing to look at. Can't we get a better apostle? His speech is unimpressive. They were comparing him with Apollos. Apollos apparently was a very 
eloquent speaker and Paul says, you know, I, I recognize that fact. My speech is not that great and I'm physically not that impressive. And now he's here in Galatia and he's a physically uncommanding presence and his speech is not that good. He's not that good a preacher and he's also sickly. He's weak. He said, you could have looked down upon me for that reason, but instead you regarded me as God's messenger. You listened to the message that I brought. You regarded me actually as Jesus Christ himself. And where did the power come from in Paul's message? It came from the fact that he was speaking the truth of God. But he was not ashamed of the fact that as the deliverer, as the vessel through which God spoke, he was weak. Look in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verse 7. Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, what God had revealed to him for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. You see, there it is, okay, the, the, the two pathways. Exalting self, confidence in self, power coming from self. Paul says, so that I wouldn't exalt myself and walk down that pathway. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Lord, I'd rather actually walk down a little bit different pathway. And God said, no. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul, I'd rather display my strength through your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do any of you boast of your weaknesses? And I don't want, I, I don't want to live that way. I, don't, I want to talk about things I'm good at. I want to talk about my strengths. Let's not dwell on my weaknesses. I went through so much physical stuff a few years ago. Man, I hated it. And I was just constantly saying, like, Paul, just take it away. Just take it away. Just take it away. Because I don't want to be weak. And I don't want people to pity me because I don't want to be pitiful. Right? That path is very humbling. To say... God, apart from you, I can do nothing. And Paul says, you know, I'm going to embrace that as actually my strength. So most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may be present in me and manifest in me. And so the power of Paul's ministry, the power of Paul's life didn't come from his personality or his eloquence or his physical stature. Power came from the grace of God in him. Why don't you turn back to Galatians with me, chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth. Paul's ministry was powerful for one simple reason, and that was he stood on the word of God. He spoke truth. Even though he physically wasn't commanding, God's word was powerful. And God's words transformed their lives. It was powerful. It was truth. A great story is told about D.L. Moody. You know, D.L. Moody was also not an eloquent speaker at all. He was very, uh, fairly uneducated. He uh, had terrible grammar. And every time he spoke, 
Someone would come up and criticize him directly to his face. It's hard for me to imagine because after I speak, I feel you know, so vulnerable to all criticism and stuff. People would just walk straight up to him and criticize him. One, one young man kept account of how many grammatical mistakes he made and then handed it to him so that he could work on that. Another man had told him, you know, you really should think about uh, your ministry being a ministry where you keep silent. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having the, the boldness to walk up and say that to somebody? Imagine someone saying that to you. Well, Moody was always gracious. And uh, gracious, but also penetrating. And one man walked up and said similar things to him. And at the end, he said, you know, it appears to me that you have excellent grammar. I'm doing the best that I can with what I have. What are you doing with your grammar for Jesus Christ? If you look at D.L. Moody's ministry, it was phenomenally powerful but not because of his own gifts and not because of his own skill or his personality or his physical presence, but because he was filled by the Spirit. He was in submission to the Spirit. Again, keep your place in Galatians and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1. Apparently this was a common theme in Paul's ministry to the Corinthian Believers, he says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined, I made a choice to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I wanted God to get all of the credit, so I didn't worry about the fact that I wasn't eloquent or powerful. And the result was that God did a transforming work in your life, and then God got all of the credit. That's a difficult path to walk down. You know, you don't see that pathway even in our churches today. We see the exaltation of the individual, the person. And I pray in our church that that wouldn't happen. I pray that what would be the transforming power would be just the word of God. Whoever's delivering it, whoever's leading worship, that we would come with hearts that are receptive to be changed by the power of God, not by the person. Because people come and go. God's word abides forever. A beautiful illustration of this, you don't have to turn there with me, let me just read it to you. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then speaking of the Messiah, it says, He grew up before him, that is, he grew up before God the Father like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That's a description of Jesus physically. Ever think about that? Jesus walked down the road and he didn't turn heads. Isn't that amazing? The eternal son of God, when he came to earth, he chose intentionally not to put on the best human body available. It was just a, he was raised in a very ordinary family, a carpenter's family, fairly poor family. He was an ordinary physical human being, so much so that when he would walk by people, no heads would turn. No one would go, wow, what a beautiful person. I should listen to what he has to say. No, they didn't. They didn't say that. And we, we, I mean, I feel a little uncomfortable saying that because I think, well, Jesus, should have, he should have been amazing. Mm, you know, like, right? 
that's Jesus. He's, he's bowed up. He's, he's, I think of Saul, right? We're thinking Saul. But he wasn't like that. The power was in the fact that he was in submission to the Father. It wasn't even his own personal power. It was the power that he drew in submission to the Father. He said of himself, On my own initiative, I do nothing. I only speak or act as the Father tells me to. Okay? You don't have to be amazing physically or intellectually or in any other respect to have an incredibly powerful life on this earth. In fact, what God would rather use is he'd rather use your ordinariness so that his power is exalted, so that his name is exalted, so that his reputation is exalted, so that people look at us and they say, wow, I would not have expected that out of that guy. (laughs) Because he's not much. Well, amen. Okay? But that's a humbling path to walk, isn't it? Where God gets all the credit and we don't grab it for ourselves. But that's the example of Jesus Christ. That's the example of Paul. Let me give you a third characteristic. He was with them with sacrificial affection. Look with me in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 17. Speaking of the Judaizers, Paul said, They eagerly seek you. Okay, they're seeking you also, like I have sought you, but not commendably. But they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. That's the path that they walk. Gathering followers around themselves, exalting themselves. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I'm present with you, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone for I am perplexed about you. He says, my little children with whom I am again in labor. I was in labor the first time when I was trying to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Now I'm in labor again because I want to see Christ formed in you. Do you see the imagery he's using? It's it's a woman in labor. He is sacrificing for them. He is in agony over them. Now he's not present with them and it kills him that he can't be present with them and to demonstrate to them again how deeply he loves them. And he reminds them of the sacrifices that he made on their behalf so that they could know Jesus Christ. Remember, he was persecuted. He suffered in the Galatian region. He was stoned nearly to death so that they could have the gospel of Jesus Christ because he loved them so dearly. That's a powerful life, people. When you say no to yourself and you say yes to God and you say no to yourself and you say yes to the needs of other people and you give yourself on behalf of other people, that's a powerful life. And since I made a transition out of college ministry, something's happened in, in my, my own personal life. I'm doing fewer weddings and I'm participating in more funerals. And funerals are much harder emotionally. But funerals are also they're a great opportunity. Just like weddings, I like doing both of them because I, I always get to present the gospel. There are always people there who don't know Jesus Christ. And I get to tell them about Jesus Christ. So if you ever ask me to do your wedding... It's going to have the gospel. Ask me to do your funeral? Oh, you're not around, so I can do whatever I want. <laughs> okay? I'm going to present the gospel. I've noticed some funerals that I've done, there's hardly anyone there. And there's, there's not a lot of folks saying really wonderful things about that person because the person lived a fairly selfish life. 
They guarded their time, they guarded their money, and the result was they had a really small life. Okay? And they go out with a whisper. And then I've participated in funerals where the house is packed. The room is full. Everyone would like to have an opportunity to stand up behind the mic, even if they don't like public speaking, but they want to say, this person impacted my life. And some of these funerals are are of people who are very quiet people. Very quiet people. But they've just given and given and given and given. And so when it's time for them to go home and be with the Lord, all these people want to show up and send them off because they have poured out their lives on behalf of others. That's a powerful life. Sometimes it's done very quietly. Just having people in their home or making a meal for someone. Sometimes it's leading a Bible study or teaching. But it, it doesn't matter. What it is, is it's the giving of the life. As Paul said uh, of the, to the Thessalonian believers, we were well pleased to impart to you not just the gospel, but actually our own lives. And the result, if you look in, in the book of Galatians, is these people saw that, they felt it, they embraced it, that Paul really loved them. And as a result, they said, We wish we could just pluck out our own eyes. We wish we could give you what's most valuable to us so that you could be whole and healthy, Paul. But you can't know that kind of love unless you give of yourself. That's a powerful life. But it's a life of self-sacrifice. That's the one theme that you see running through the life of Paul. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul was constantly saying no to himself. He said no to his own self-righteousness. He said no to his own rights as an apostle. To bring along a believing wife, to receive support from these churches. He said no to himself in terms of feeling more comfortable with some of the Jewish rituals and not eating certain meats, but he said no to himself and he reached across the table and he shared meals with Gentiles. He said, I become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. It is not about me. I'm going to give all of my rights. This is the pattern of Paul's life. He says to God, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. So Paul makes this incredibly passionate appeal And then what he does is he goes back to the Old Testament and he says, let me give you an illustration of how this works out. Let's look at the illustration, chapter 4 and verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, the law representing the life of independence from God, choosing my will over God's will, do you not listen to the law? Do you not listen to this illustration? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman according, was born through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, Paul says allegorically speaking, he's not saying that this historical account is an allegory. He's saying 
Let me use this historical account as an illustration. There were two women, Hagar and Sarah. And Hagar had a son, but her son was born completely according to natural means. Sarah's son, Isaac, was born completely supernaturally. These women represent two covenants. One is the Mosaic, which is a covenant of works that God has set aside. Sarah represents a covenant of promise that is received through faith. You don't come and offer anything to God. You just receive it. That's the essence of the gospel. God, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Now, thank you for the gift of your spirit that comes with Jesus Christ who can transform me. Not my will today, but your will be done. Transform me. I submit. Okay, that's justification and that's sanctification. He's using these two women as an illustration. He says, present Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, Judaism, and some of these believers who come from Jerusalem preaching the law again. That represents slavery. Life doesn't work that way, people. You can't change yourself and you can't impact the lives of others for eternity on your own strength. You can't. But through faith and confidence in the power of God's Spirit through you, you can have a phenomenally powerful, transformed life. That represents, is represented by Isaac, who was the son of promise. Now, let's look at the story specifically, Genesis 16, and draw out a few lessons from it. Genesis chapter 16, in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now, Abraham had been promised that he would have a son, remember? He's going to have a seed, he's going to have a descendant. Uh, Had Sarah yet been told that she would bear a child? No, she hadn't. But it was strongly implied, given the fact that she was the only wife, right? Abraham, your husband, he's going to have a son. That involves you. You're the wife, okay? It's implied. But it's not happening, and it's not happening, and it's not happening. Have you ever had something that you really long for in life, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen? Hard to wait, isn't it? Oh, man, it's so hard to wait. So she doesn't wait. So she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's his fault. He did this. He is not allowing me to have children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, uh, socially, this was not an unheard of thing. Monogamy was actually kind of the rule of the day. Polygamy was an exception. Most families were monogamous, but if there was infertility, uh, the wife, uh, if she had servants, could give that servant to her husband, and those children would technically be counted as hers. Okay? So it was a socially acceptable thing. She's feeling impatient, so she hands her, her servant to Abram. Verse 3, it says, After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, that is Sarai, was despised in her sight. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Man, I, this, I was thinking last night, I would hate to be in that tent. You know? Gosh. You're not, man, you're not, you are not going to win. 
You cannot win. And here's the deal. Sarai comes up with a plan. Abram goes along with the plan, and the plan works. Right? The plan works. They have a baby. It works. This is exactly according to plan. And then the plan blows up. Now, I'm not saying that as human beings we should never take initiative, but we should not take initiative outside of the will of God. When the great saints who are held up as models in the Bible want to know what to do next, they don't just act. It says they sought the Lord. Abram and Sarah didn't seek the Lord. They didn't say, God, what is the next step for us? What are you asking for from us? What should we do next? They don't do that. They take matters into their own hands. Their plan works, but their plan, although working from a human perspective, is outside of the will of God. And what happens? Man, they have conflict in their house. It's bad, and it gets worse. And you know what? You can pick up the paper today, and you can read about the results of this bad decision. Because... Ishmael is the father of the Arabs, Isaac is the father of the Jews, and to this day they are fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. There is conflict. So you can take matters into your own hands. When Jesus says, apart from me you can do nothing, it doesn't mean that you can't do anything in absolute terms. You can do nothing that honors me and gives glory to me that is in your own strength. You can't do that. So instead, you say, God, show me your will. Show me your will. Give me the patience to wait to see your will. Give me the strength and the courage to fulfill your will once I know what it is. And I commit myself just to walking that path. But you know, every single day I get up and I I face that battle. That is the fundamental battle. That is the fundamental temptation that we face. God's will or our will. This last week I was reading uh, in Hebrews. I have my quiet time in Hebrews. I hadn't read it in a long time. It's one of my favorite books. And I got stopped in chapter 2 and verse 18. Let me read this to you. It says, for since he himself, that is Jesus, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted in that which he has suffered. We, we know Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, but this is saying Jesus was tempted in his suffering. Talking about the cross. What, what was the temptation for Jesus? When he was in the garden and he's about to uh, be be scourged and beaten and then hung on a cross. What's the temptation that he's facing? Escape, his own will, right? Jesus faced the temptation, the fundamental temptation that Satan gave into, that Satan tempted Adam and Eve into, that we face every day. Jesus faced that fundamental temptation. I could call those legions of angels and crush Rome right now. I could set up the kingdom right now and avoid the cross, I don't have to go through that physical suffering. I don't have to go through uh, the separation from God because I bear the sins of all peoples for all times. I don't have to do that. And so he actually prayed to the Father and he said, can we find a different will? Do you have another? Is there a plan B? The temptation he faced was to pursue his own will. Even Jesus faced that temptation. But the most powerful prayer that can be uttered was modeled to us by Jesus Christ. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. Men and women, that is the fundamental prayer that brings transformation and strength into 
our lives. And so Paul concludes this section and he says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. Because you can't mix your will and God's will. Choose God's will or choose your will. And Paul says, please, choose God's will. Cast out the bondwoman. Don't try to live in your own strength. And then he's going to go on and he's going to map out for us, what does this look like? Day by day by day. But this is the starting point. And so as we close, I want you to just to take a few moments before the Lord and let him search your heart. And ask him to give you the courage to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that there are transactions, interactions that need to happen with you today for each of us because we are constantly faced with this temptation to cling to our own will, to cling to our own rights, to become impatient and angry with you, and to go our own way. And sometimes it actually seems to work. I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to constantly surrender our will to yours. And Father, I pray that each of us individually as a, as a family of believers, that we would see, even from this day on, we would see a, a transforming power working in our midst as we humble ourselves before you, say no to ourselves, and we say yes to your will. Father, I thank you that your son Jesus Christ modeled this pathway for us. He's not calling us to do something that he has not. I pray, Lord, uh, today that you would reveal your will to us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.